We're live on July 4th, and it's thoroughly Jewish Thursday, and the phone lines are open. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, here we are on the 4th of July. It's Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Phone lines are open. This is Michael Brown, 866-34-TRUTH. Yes, we are live. Uh, Why are we live on the 4th of July when most others will play a repeat broadcast? Well, one, we love being on the air. It's our joy. I prefer being on the air than not being on the air. That's one thing. Second thing is that We had staff ready to join us and be here, so appreciate our guys working on a holiday. And third thing is, it gives you an opportunity to call in. Maybe you work during the day and you'd like to call, but you're unable to. So this gives you the opportunity to call in and answer and and answer, ask your questions, put forth your theses. So number to call 866-348-7884. So first and foremost, because it's Thursday, Jewish Thursday, we want to take Jewish-related calls. So, related to Hebrew Bible, Hebrew question, Judaism, Israel, Jewish people today, anything Jewish-related, we want to take those calls, and we'll get to those first. However, phone lines are open for any subject under the sun. If I have time to get to other subjects, because it is a holiday, and wanted to give you an opportunity to call, and if I have time to get to other subjects as well, we'll take calls. So one more time, 866 Eight eight four. I am blessed to be an American. I am thankful to God that I live in America. I understand our many shortcomings. We talked yesterday about America's strong points and weak points. My, my eyes are not blind to the many faults in our history and our many weaknesses, but I appreciate so much about our nation. I recognize that we have a can-do-anything-is-possible mentality. I recognize that we are incredibly prosperous and therefore have all kinds of resources and amazing opportunities. And I recognize that our historic roots, our Christian biblical roots, have paved the way for our greatness. I have an article that's up today excerpted and adopted from my book, Saving a Sick America, where we remember America's Christian roots. And we've never been a, quote, Christian nation. We've never been totally Christian either in population or in action, but we have strong Christian roots, and those roots lay at the the foundation of many of the special qualities in America. When uh, George Washington was president, he was famously asked a question by a Jewish synagogue in, what was it, Turo, Connecticut, would be Connecticut now, if I'm correct, and they wanted to know about equal rights. They wanted to know what life would be like under these United States of America. And Washington's letter to the Jewish people there is famous in American history, where he made clear that this is going to be a country without bigotry, and this is going to be a country that recognizes Abraham's seed, speaking of the Jewish people. And thankfully, America had a role in voting for the rebirth of the modern state of Israel, President Truman voting for it, and there are amazing circumstances behind that. And 
America's had a key role in standing with Israel as a major ally many a time. UN Security Council vote when everything is stacked against Israel. America has been the one to stand with Israel and to stand for righteousness. And my hat's off to President Trump for moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Remember, this was signed into law that we recognize the capital of Israel as Jerusalem and that we would move our embassy there. That was signed into law under President Bill Clinton, but he never did it. And there was a clause just to postpone it six months, postpone it six months. And that was done all through President Bush's administration, all eight years, and all through President Obama's administration, all eight years. During the campaign, when President Trump talked about it, that he was going to do it, I remember seeing a CNN commentator who was all worked up about it. He says, everybody talks about it, but nobody's actually going to do it. Everybody promises it, but they're not actually going to do it. Well, President Trump did it remarkably. And did all hell break loose? Has the entire Middle East fallen apart? Is it the end of the world? Did it bring another Holocaust on Israel? No. Has America lost its standing with Muslim countries that it's been dealing with and negotiating with and trying to work out a larger peace plan that would bring great economic prosperity to the Palestinians and a lot more self-determination in terms of business and education and things like that while protecting Israel's security Has America lost its standing? No. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm I'm blessed to be here in America, and I appreciate what President Trump has done on behalf of Israel. And and even though George Bush was known as a friend of Israel, Trump has done far more. And yes, there was hostility and icy relations, at least icy relations between President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu, but Things are so much better now with President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu. I'm glad in any case, though, that even with the Obama presidency, that we did not totally turn against Israel, that there was still a recognition of the importance of that relationship. That being said, I believe that with calamity and crisis in America, there could be a large scale turn of hatred against the Jewish population here. And that the only ones that would really stand with them would be solid believers in Jesus. That even many church-going people would turn against them. If we had some economic crisis, God forbid that we do, but if we had an economic collapse, if suddenly people are starving, if there had to be a scapegoat as to why we're having these problems, it would not surprise me that America could turn on a dime and turn against Israel. It's happened in nation after nation after nation after nation. And just think of it. Jews are are leaving countries like France and England in large number now because of concerns about their own security after living there for centuries. They are moving to Israel at much more rapid rates. And, And then Germany, where it's illegal to deny the Holocaust, it's against the law. Jews have been warned, you you don't want to wear a kippah, a yarmulke, head covering in public because it's dangerous. Who would have thought these things could happen? So we remain vigilant. And I speak about these things to combine July 4th and thoroughly Jewish Thursday. All right, let us go straight to the phones. And we're going to start in Marietta, Georgia with Justin. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, God bless you, Dr. Brown. God bless you. Um, I had a question for you about the Exodus. So uh, I always... You know, hear the the narrative that 
the people sinned against God, and, uh, you know, they were bondage for 400 years. So I've been reading through Exodus, and I really don't see uh, them being in bondage up until the last, you know, 30 years after uh, the Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph came. And I also never really read, unless there's a, you know, more detailed account later in the Bible, but I also didn't read about them sinning to get put there in the first place. I'm not sure if you're familiar much with what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, of, of course I'm familiar with it, and I appreciate you thinking about these things, because normally we have a a presupposed narrative that we're familiar with, and we just think it's accurate, right. and and we go with it, and then one day it's like, hmm, where'd that come from? All right, so number one, right. the sin that's mentioned in Genesis 15, where it's prophesied that they'll be there for 400 years, is the sin of the Amorites, the sin of the Canaanites. In other words, that that Israel being in Egypt, one of the reasons was God had to wait until the sin of the, the native inhabitants of the land of Canaan had reached its, its breaking point when it would be right to judge them and for Israel to drive them out. So that's part of the equation. Noah doesn't mention them uh, being put in bondage because of their sin. They went down to Egypt. That was the plan of God. Uh, God sent Joseph there uh, to preserve them. They went down there, and it's over a period of time that then as they, they take root there, begin to grow and prosper, they're looked at as, as a threat. But I, I want to draw your attention to something in Exodus, the second chapter, okay? Um, at the end of Exodus, the second chapter, it's, it says mm-hmm. this. And now, r- remember this, all right? They're already oppressed before Moses is born, Right? They, they've been slaves for a good period of time before Moses is born. And Moses doesn't flee Egypt until he's 40. So wherever you got the idea of, of 30 years or something like that, that's obviously not the case. Because Pharaoh wants to kill the, the Israelite bo- uh, baby boys when Moses is born, right? And again, he flees for his life when he's 40. So they've been oppressed for a long time before then and growing and prospering now to the point of Pharaoh trying to, to wipe them out by, by killing the, the, the boys or decimate the population. But notice at the end of, of the second chapter, because now Moses, how long is, is, is Moses away for 40 years, right? So when he goes to deliver Egypt, the Jewish people from Egypt, he's 80 years old, correct? So you've already got the slavery going on at least 80 years at this point. And it, and it says, verse 23 of Exodus 2, uh, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, uh, because of their slavery. They cried out and their cry from slavery went up to God. God heard their sobbing and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, and he was concerned about them. So again, you've got a period here of, at least 80 years when they've been oppressed terribly. And then a period of time before that, where they, they are working as slaves and under, uh, under the, the thumb of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. So it's not that they were in bondage for full 400 years, but they were suffering for several generations before the deliverance came. And, and that becomes self-evident from the text. All right. Okay, yeah, yeah, that uh, that actually does clear it up. Um, because when I was reading it, it, it almost seemed just like 
things were going well up until, you know, the indentured servitude. And then when uh, the new pharaoh came in, it seemed like things started getting bad. Yeah, so you just telescoped it a bit too much. In, in, in other words, you, you, you shortened the time of the, of the oppression. But you're on to, to the good questions to ask and to look at that afresh. So hopefully the, what we just deduced together from Scripture is helpful. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. We're going to keep looking into the Word, and phone lines are open, especially for Jewish-related questions on this July 4th. And look, I believe that America standing with Israel, as important as it is for Israel, is more important for America than it is for Israel. Standing with Israel does not mean standing against the Palestinians. It does mean standing for what's right and recognizing God's purpose. We'll be right back. of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the line of fire on this thoroughly Jewish Thursday on July 4th. We are live. Phone lines open, 866-34-TRUTH. Hey, I have a question for all my anti-Semitic listeners. If the Jews control the banks, if they do that, do they control the banks in the Muslim world? Do they control the oil money, Saudi Arabia and Iran? Do they control the banks in China, in Russia? You know, the fact is, anti-Semitism is so irrational and self-contradictory that it thrives on lies. And truth is, is its greatest enemy. The good news for anti-Semites is they don't need truth because there's enough bias against Jewish people to feed into. that They can just feed on lies. Bad news for anti-Semites is ultimately the truth is going to triumph. 866-34-TRUTH. Hey, uh, Adam and Brooklyn, I'm going to get to you shortly. I love your question, and I want to get to it shortly, but just going in the order that calls came in. Uh, let me go over to Arkansas. Jody, welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. I was, uh, I, I was doing some research for a, a Sunday school class uh, mm-hmm. where we've been looking at some messianic pro- prophecies. Yep. And so I wanted to get the Jewish perspective, and so I found this video online, and it was uh, a counter-missionary video by a particular rabbi, uh, and he gave an interpretation of uh, Micah 5.2, mm-hmm. and there was... Two, two issues I didn't understand, one at the start, but really at the end. Um, so uh, you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, um, the, apparently his, his, the way he presented that was this is Bethlehem that is referencing the line of David rather than the actual city. Uh, which seems weird, but then, you know, when he went on to explain that uh, why would this be too little to be among the clans, that this had to do with their um, uh, stature within the the uh, Jewish people. And, and this is what was really strange to me, that it, based on uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, 
uh, in verse 2, or I'm excuse verse 3, where uh, it says that no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord uh, to the tenth generation, mm-hmm. that because in the line of David you had Ruth, who was a Moabitess, that somehow because uh, that she was allowed to convert to Judaism because of uh, oral tradition, which taught that uh, in that passage in Deuteronomy, that was only speaking of the men, not the women. And so she was allowed to join, but because you have this Moabitess woman in the line of David, that this is what is uh, is referring to, that they are the least among the clans of Judah. And so two, two things there. I just... I don't know of any place else in Scripture where you see a line of people represented by a town name, and then how you explain the second part of that. So, uh, yeah. It, so, so the it, the first thing is, yeah, Matthew it goes out of his way to speak of the the different women, the foreign women who are part of the genealogy of the Messiah, and it's part of God's larger redemptive plan, and also including the the Gentile nations. So that's that's one thing, and uh, there's no pro- I, I don't agree with that interpretation that that's what it's actually saying, but I don't have a problem with it. All right, no, it's, it's nothing either way. That's not the big issue, but certainly Bethlehem is mentioned. Uh, yes, it is the place of David's descent. There's no question about it. But it does say, "From you will go forth from me a ruler in Israel." All right, so. Is it not striking that the Messiah is born in that very city? You know, that's that's the thing that's interesting. And the Targum, which is the Jewish translation slash paraphrase, recognizes this, that this is messianic. It's speaking of King Messiah. So, yeah, it is both the ancient city of David, but is the city from which the Messiah will go forth. All right. So it doesn't it doesn't mention David here. It mentions the city. So how striking it is, and by divine providence kind of going out of the way, that the Messiah is actually born in Bethlehem. So that's the, that's the first thing. You could say it also includes a reference to David and his history. That's fine. But certainly there's no proof from the text or even a hint from the text that the Messiah would not be born there or that it would not be of significance that he's born there. So that's, that's number one. Uh, number two, the normal debate is the end of the verse where it, it says, does that mean and his origins are of old from ancient times or his origins are from old from eternity? And you may could be translated either way in Hebrew. It could mean from ancient, you know, way back as far back as you can remember, or it could be that it, it means from eternity past. And either one is possible in terms of how to render it. So the one argument, a Jewish argument would be his origins go way back, all the way back to David. But David's days are not considered so far back that they're like, well, you may allow these ancient, ancient days, you know, beyond almost beyond memory. So that's why some rabbinic interpretation of this verse says that that when God created the universe, that one of the things that he created was the name of the Messiah, meaning that the Messiah was always in his plan, and a verse like this is, is looked at as a proof of that. So the, the counter-missionary argument really is, is fairly weak here. It certainly does not disprove the idea 
on any level. It does not disprove the idea that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The fact that he was and the fact that his origins go back to everlasting really open up the full meaning of this verse. Uh, And by the way, I've got five volumes on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. And volume three, Jody, is the one where I deal with objections to Messianic prophecy. So you'll find specific answers there in volume three, where I deal with Micah, the fifth chapter. Thank you very much for the question and for doing the study. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go over to Aaron in Brooklyn. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Happy July 4th. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I have a question. Is um, There's a unique claim to Judaism, and what I see as the biggest proof to the validity of the Torah is the claim that God revealed himself to the entire nation of Israel, a national revelation. Uh, Why didn't God make a national revelation for his new covenant? Yeah, actually he did. So first he he put it in the book of Jeremiah that he would do it. And then secondly, Jesus the Messiah for a period of of three years performed miracles, demonstrated who he was, died, then and then repeated this process in city after city for years and years and years and years. So you could say that in a much deeper way that God did this and made it clear and did it over and over, first to the people of, of Judah and Jerusalem, and then remember each year, crowds coming in for, for the three major holy days each year, coming in and then hearing him teach, the crowds thinking he was a prophet, wanting to hail him as, as, as the king, then dying, rising from the dead, then the proof that he rose by the Spirit being poured out, and this on a level where Jews from, from all over the world are there again in Jerusalem, can hear the message and take it back. went out and preached in his name and miracles continued to happen to verify in fact that he was risen from the dead. And then they could point back to the scriptures and say, look, the scripture said he's going to die. The scripture said he's going to be rejected. The scripture said he's going to be raised. So they had the witness of the scriptures and the witness of the resurrection. And, and it was very much on a, on a national level. So I mean, that, uh, in that, that sense, you could say God did it on a much more, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. So, but, in Deuteronomy, it says, in chapter 5, verse 4, it says that face-to-face the Lord spoke with you. I mean, and then it uh, repeats that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9 through 13. It says, God spoke to you from the midst of the fire. And he's, I mean, mm-hmm. in Deuteronomy, also in chapter 13, I'm sorry, it says that charlatans and false prophets can perform miracles and uh, predict stuff. So, I mean, mm-hmm. what, Jesus as amazing as his miracles must have been, it wasn't God speaking. Why, why wouldn't God repeat the same thing that he did for Israel, which is to come before an entire nation? And, I mean, that claim of yeah. God coming down and speaking to an entire nation can't be falsified. So if he, was, if he did it for Israel, why wouldn't he well, do of that? Of course it could be. Yeah, let me, let, me just jump, let me just jump in, and, and then, yeah, let me just jump in. I've got a break, and we'll continue the conversation. But of course it can be falsified. You can make a claim 
that, oh, yeah, this is a lost tradition we had. You can make a claim that, oh, yeah, generations back this happened and we've lost the memory of it and now we've recovered it. And, oh, here it is in a document. Oh, we forgot that. But, but here's what I want you to chew on. And then we'll come back to this on, on the other side of the break. Um, why would God do the same thing again when it was such a failure the first time? When the people failed so miserably, why would he go do the same thing again? And doesn't he say in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, it won't be like the Sinai Covenant. I'm going to do it differently this time. Remember, just days after he spoke this to the nation, just days after it, they're they're worshiping an idol. And that whole generation, except for two, died in the wilderness. So why would God do the same thing with those results? We'll be right back. Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Or Joey. Thanks, Joey. Michael Brown, welcome, welcome to our live broadcast here on July 4th, early Jewish Thursday. Yeah, we uh, seem to have a, a bit of a weather issue and our stream seemed to have crashed. So if anyone was interrupted, my profound apologies. So, uh, Aaron in Brooklyn, are you still there? Yep, I'm still here. Yeah, so what I'm curious about, aside from wondering how... God would get the entire Jewish nation together in one place when they were scattered all around the world at, at this point. But Why? since they went through the desert, weren't they together? They were together then, right? But then, since then, scattered all around the world. But w where oh. does it say God would do that again? And why would He do it when all it did was brought Israel's rebellion to the surface? In other words, we failed so totally under the Sinai Covenant.
right, are we uh, are we reconnected now? Is that a is that a yes? Are we reconnected? If we yes, okay. Boy, my apologies if if you're listening on radio thinking what in the world is is going on. And my apologies, uh, Aaron. I, I so much wanted to to finish speaking with you. Listen, if somehow our system goes down here with some weather crash, uh, every every so often over the years we've had that happen uh, with our transmission. But uh, let us know how to continue the conversation with you. Lashawn will will jump on and find out how we can do that. So, uh, Aaron, my question was: Why would God repeat the same thing? when all it did was bring out our sinfulness and, and we, we continually suffered under it to the point that God said he was going to make a new and better repeat the same process the same way. I don't see um, them sinning after a national revelation, a cor- correlation with the revelation. I think they're two separate stuff, and I think he would do it because I think it's an unfalsifiable claim. I think uh, no other nation, no other religion has ever claimed a national revelation, so I think it, it's something that would be necessary if a new covenant really did take place. But, but, but why didn't God say that? I mean, he's the one that was making it. You're, you're putting a term on it that he didn't put, which is like adding to the Bible. Well, let, let me ask so you what, this. What term? The term that he had to do it the same way the next time he made it. Where does it say that? I don't that? think it's mentioned anywhere that he was making a New Testament. So I don't it's, think it was necessary for him to make it. And he actually did in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32 through 35. He speaks about, um, ask now regarding the early days that preceded you from the day that God created man on earth and from one right. end to the heaven and the other end of the heavens. Has there ever been anything like this great thing? Or has anything like it ever been heard? Have a people ever heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you heard. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Right, but, but so what, what do you is. do with what right. he says in Jeremiah 31, verse, beginning verse 31, hopefully you have Nacht in front of you. See, a time I is don't. coming. Okay, okay. so I'll, I'll read it in English just for the sake of our, of our mm-hmm. listeners. See, a time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant which they broke, though I espoused them, declares the Lord, but such is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord, I'll put my teaching into their inmost being, inscribe it upon the hearts, and I'll be their God, they'll be my people. No longer will they need to teach one another and save one another. Heed the Lord for all of them from the least to the greatest.
dignity, keeping his children submissive. However, in Titus, the first chapter, he says, if anyone is above reproach, verse 6, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, that, that one can be installed. It, it would be difficult to say that the children of every pastor and leader must all be believers at all times. What about kids that go through a phase of rebellion, but the father deals with them correctly and they, they turn back around? You know, the prodigal son being an example. What about when they're older and out of the house? Uh, you could argue that all of them happen, must be active believers. There was a certain authority in the ancient world then we don't have today where you could basically say we are all following this faith. And they, as long as they were in the house, they had to do it. That makes it more easily done then. But without question, if a man does not have control of his household, if his children are out of control, if he's unable to, to keep them from living wild lives and getting in trouble while they're under his roof, then yes, that makes it questionable. That makes it as to his ability to lead the church effectively. And that's what the Word of God says, God being very practical with us. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, I am getting to as many of your Twitter questions as I can on the special edition of You've Got Questions, We've Got Answers here on The Line of Fire. Hey, another reminder, join our Patreon team. I know so many of you listening, watching, you love the work that God's called us to do. You benefit from it. We hear from you all the time. I know some of you are critics and you tune in to bash or just get angry. That, that's fine. I'm glad you're, glad you're tuning in. But the vast, vast, vast majority, you've been standing with us. You love us. You appreciate the broadcast. We hear so many kind words from you. I, I want to encourage you to partner with us, to enable us to do what we're doing even better, to reach even more people, to put out even more quality material that is so, so needed today in so many formats. And the simplest way you can do it, because we know money's tight and there are, there are a lot of ministries worthy of, of your support and your home congregation always comes first, but you can, with just pennies a day, become a Patreon partner, and we bless you back in many ways as well. So $10 or more per month over on Patreon. If, if you don't have that, you can give less, of course, but stand with us. Would you do that? Some of you listen to the broadcast or watch for many years now. It would, it would be great to partner with us. So you go to patreon.com forward slash Brown A-S-K-D-R Brown dot, uh, excuse me, that's it, patreon.com forward slash Brown If you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, you see the link on the screen there in our post. So join us, sign up today, and when you do, not only do you have the joy of knowing that we're reaching people together and lives are being changed together, not only do you have treasure stored up in heaven, not only will God bless you back in many other ways, but we'll thank you as well with two special videos every single week. A new bonus video that we post the beginning of every week just for you that will edify you and bless you and help you and inform you. And then our exclusive YouTube chats where I answer your questions on YouTube for about an hour once a week. We post that there exclusively on Patreon 
as well. So thanks for joining us there. All right. Uh, Terrence, is there a short answer to why Calvin taught once saved, always saved? It's what I've always been taught, but since retiring, I've spent a lot of time reading the Bible, but don't get that impression at all. Yeah, I don't get that impression either. But to be technical, Calvin did not so much teach once saved, always saved, as, as much as perseverance of the saints. Now, understood rightly, they're the same thing. But once saved, always saved for many means that if you pray a prayer and ask Jesus into your heart to forgive you, that you are forgiven no matter what from that point on. You can live like the devil, you can show no evidence of change, and you're still saved. A Calvinist, a follower of John Calvin, would say, no, if you're truly saved, you'll persevere in holiness till the end. If you fall away, it will only be temporary because you'll come back. All right? That's what a Calvinist would believe. Why did Calvin say that? Because he believed that God predestined certain people by his choice and his will, not based on anything in us, but just his love and why he chose one and passed over another is his business. This is what a Calvinist would say. So he chose people from before the foundation of the world and secured their salvation with the blood of Jesus and destined them to go on this path from here to eternity with the Lord. So there's no deviation from that. The moment you're saved, it's fixed. In fact, it was fixed in God's mind from before the foundation of the world, the beginning and the end. God's already seen the end of the movie, you could say, and, and, and he's established it to be as is. That's why a Calvinist would hold to that. They would say that the infallible grace by which you were saved, in other words, God chose to save you, infallibly saved you, now he will infallibly keep you until the end, and it's all his grace. That would be the Calvinist answer. A.H., can you give an example of a situation in which a divorced Christian can marry, again, taking consideration Matthew 5, 32? All right. First, you must... Work this through for yourself to be 100% sure. You need to read Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. But you also need to read in Mark and Luke where they mention divorce with no possibility of remarriage while the spouse is living or Romans 7 as well. You, you need to be sure before remarrying if you're divorced. My understanding of Scripture is that there are legitimate cases where the spouse breaks the marital covenant, the spouse commits adultery, the spouse will not repent and come back, perhaps the spouse remarries, or the spouse falls away from the Lord and abandons you and refuses to come back. As I understand it, in those situations, if reconciliation is impossible, then it is possible for a believer to remarry even while the ex-spouse is still alive. Others say, as long as the ex-spouse is still alive, there's no possibility of marriage. That's why I'm saying study it for yourself. My understanding is there are cases where it would be possible to remarry, and God will bless that remarriage. Others strongly differ based on Scripture. As they understand it, just be sure before you take a step that you feel confident that what you're doing is according to God's word and will. Counsel with others if you like, but ultimately come to a definite conclusion. Pilgrim. Was Jesus Christ actually God on earth? Yes, he was. He was. For Abraham was, I am. That is the eternal son speaking. And in point of fact, if he is God, he was, you can't cease to be God. Either you're God or you're not God. All right. Did he take on human form? Did he pitch his tent among us? Was the divine nature joined to human nature in a unique way while he was on the earth? Yes, absolutely. Did he choose not to use all of his divine prerogatives and power? Yes, 
Absolutely. He was fully man and fully God at one and the same time. The Word, which in the beginning was with God, but in the beginning was God, the Word became flesh. The Word pitched his tabernacle, his tent among us. That Word is God. Colossians 2.9, that in Jesus, the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Yes, absolutely God on earth, but not using his divine prerogatives to the full as we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Uh, Josh, do you hold to biblical inerrancy? Yes. I believe that the original manuscripts, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, the original words were perfectly inspired and were given to us without error, but there is error in transmission, so we may have discrepancies with numbers and things like that, and there are things in Scripture which they seem to contradict each other, and we, we may not have an explanation at the moment, However, however, I do hold to scriptural inerrancy that the word of God is God-breathed. And if you're going to say there are errors, then on what basis do we determine error? Uh, uh, according to whom? According to what criteria? And, and, and how is it that we don't now become arbiters of what's true and what's not true as opposed to the word sitting judgment on us? We now sit in judgment on the word. Um, Lance Dr. Brown, curious why Jews do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. Thousands of first-hand Jewish eyewitnesses to Jesus' miracles, his disciples saw him for 40 days after his crucifixion and death. Old Testament full of Messianic references with Jesus obviously fulfilled, or Jews in denial. Uh, Lance, I love your question because you see things so clearly through the eye of faith. Uh, a traditional Jew would think that, that you're delusional. A traditional Jew would think that you're just believing myths and fables from the past. A traditional Jew would think that you're reading things into Scripture that aren't there, that, that only someone could read in if they were looking for them. A traditional Jew would say, what about all the persecution of Jews in Jesus' name through history? What about the horrors of church history? How can you possibly be Christians? Uh, and, and how could Jesus possibly be the Messiah? And look at world history. When the Messiah comes, there's going to be peace on earth, and there's been nothing but war and trouble and disaster for the last 2,000 years. And Jesus fulfilled none of the prophecies. It said that, that would be a traditional Jewish viewpoint. Now, we have answers to all those things, but I'd encourage you to, to watch some of my debates on YouTube, where I debate rabbis, and see what they have to say, and, and see how I answer them. And then if you want to find out more, go to realmessiah.com, realmessiah.com, our Jewish website. Go there and start to scroll through the objections and see how we answer those objections. Uh, and then I've got five volumes on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. There are a lot of objections. But by God's grace, we have answers for every single one of them. Jordan, could you explain how you hold to dispensationalism? I know you're not pre-trib, but otherwise you hold to a very Darby-esque eschatology, even though it's a less than 200-year-old doctrine, given your knowledge of theology and church history. Thanks. Ah, oh, with all respect, Jordan, you got an opposite. The first believers, the disciples of the apostles, were millenarians. Uh, they, they believed that there would be a thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. Yeah, they, they did. In Acts 1, Jesus doesn't deny God's future purposes for Israel. The disciples ask in Acts 1.6, will, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus doesn't say, you buffoons, you idiots, you fools. It's not what John Calvin said, that there were more errors than words in their question. No. He says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons the Father's appointed by his own authority. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What he's saying is a great question. Yeah, the kingdom will be restored to Israel. Great question, but that's not your focus. Your focus is being witnesses and preaching the gospel. All right, so, so, 
Uh, I hold to it, number one, because Scripture teaches it. And the earliest believers, they were not amillennial. They never heard of that. They were not post-millennial. They never heard of that. They were absolutely not preterists, for sure. The disciples of the apostles believed in a literal reign of Jesus for a thousand years on the earth. I believe God keeps his promises. Didn't Peter say that heaven must receive Jesus and the time comes for the restoration of all things spoken of by the, the prophets? What did they speak about? Read Isaiah 2. Read Isaiah 11. What did they speak about? Did Jesus literally come the first time the way he said, yeah? Will he literally come the second time like he said, yeah? Will the words of the prophets literally be fulfilled? The, the prophets who said God will scatter his people, regather them, and then restore the kingdom? Yeah. Nothing. I'm, I'm not dispensationalist. I'm not Darby-esque. I, I believe God's working simultaneously in, in, among the Jewish people and in the church. I believe the church consists of saved Jews and, and, and Gentiles, one in Jesus, and he continues to fulfill his promises to Israel. Romans 15, 7 and 8. Jesus, the Messiah, confirms the promises to the patriarchs. He does not cancel them. All right. Have a blessed weekend. Join us at AskDrBrown.org. Become a Patreon partner at Patreon.com forward slash Ask Dr. Brown. God bless.